Church, if you could please open up to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 41 this morning. As you're turning there, I want to talk for a moment about zip lines. You think, Garrett, what in the world does zip lines have to do with Acts chapter 2? Zip lines are terrifying. Uh, Who likes zip lines in here? Okay. Now, who is sane? Good. We've got others, others in here. Okay, zip lines, wonderful, scary, terrifying, thrilling, just simply amazing. So basically, it's simple. You just hook up to the zip line, and then they tell you, depending on what zip line you're at, you know, just lean your weight forward and let the zip line carry you, and you just ride it on. You just have to essentially trust the zip line. There's no, there's no being good at zip lining. It's like I'm an expert zip liner. That you don't train to be a terrific zip liner. You might train to be the one who operates the zip line, and I'm going to check the equipment, make sure everything is sturdy, secure. But as far as the rider, there's no expertise required. We would go and do youth camps and take our youth, and there would be these zip lines. We went to, uh, I think maybe this one was in Guatemala, maybe, and they let you zip line across a valley. And they hook you up, and they do all this, and, and the students loved it. No expertise required. Sign a waiver, good to go. They'd go up, big, huge valley. They'd hook up, harness, get the thing, latch on, check all the connections. They let them go, and then they just scream and go across the valley. They thought it was the greatest thing in the world. No expertise required. The only thing that you need to be good at ziplining is trust. I trust that when I lunge over this valley, I'm not going to fall. I trust the harness, I trust the equipment, I trust that everything is going to work the right way. Now that doesn't mean that all you need is trust. The equipment still needs to be in place. You still need some way to generate momentum. You still have to have a a higher starting point or some way to generate that speed. But if the momentum is there and the equipment is secure, then all you need at that point is trust. Sharing the gospel is a lot like zip lining. It is much less about what you bring to the table and more about making sure you have the right equipment, a way to generate the power, and then trust. So this morning, here's our main idea. Being a faithful witness of Jesus requires trust more than talent requires trust more than talent. I've heard over and over people who are afraid to share the gospel say, I'm just not good at it. What you need is trust a lot more than talent. To give you some context, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're going to see the power of God working through the witness of the church. In chapter 1, We saw that God promised power through the Holy Spirit so that the church can become a powerful witness, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now we're going to see all of that power on display in the church's first official witness, the sermon at Pentecost. So hopefully you're there, Acts chapter 2. We are going to read uh, verses 1 through 21. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're physically unable to stand for the duration of that, that's okay. You can remain seated. But I am going to read verses 1 through 21 for us together. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. O Lord God, this morning as we approach you through your word, you have already filled us, your people, with your spirit. We have become witnesses of this marvelous promise. Now, Lord, as your word is proclaimed yet again, Would you continue this mighty work of empowering your people for faithful witness? Speak your word powerfully into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Acts chapter 2 is one of those famous chapters in Scripture. Even if you're not incredibly familiar with the Bible, most people can tell you where the love chapter is, 1 Corinthians 13. A lot of people can maybe tell you where the Sermon on the Mount is, Matthew 5 through 7. Some people might be able to tell you where the Ten Commandments are, Exodus 20. A lot of people can also tell you where Pentecost is, Acts chapter 2. Now, Pentecost did not originate in Acts chapter 2. This is a reference to the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost meaning basically 50. There's this 50 period this, this Feast of Weeks, counting after the Sabbath, after the Passover, we don't need all the details. The point is, this is a Jewish practice. They have gathered together to celebrate this memorial feast, and as they've gathered together at Pentecost, something spectacular happens. This chapter, in this chapter, the gift of tongues is described more fully than anywhere else in Scripture. 
In this chapter, we have the very first Christian sermon given where there's a clear call to believe. In this chapter, there's a wonderful picture of revival as thousands come to faith in Christ. However, most significantly, chapter 2 is the beginning of the fulfillment of what was promised in chapter 1. Let me remind you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Chapter 2 is the first demonstration of this spirit-fueled, powerful witness beginning in Jerusalem. This morning, I'm going to give you the secret of a powerful witness. This is what I call the threefold witness of the Christian. We're going to see the witness of the Spirit, the witness of the Scriptures, and the witness of God's servant. So number one, the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit is evidence. The witness of the Spirit is visible evidence. Jesus' promise came with the promise of power. And the scene at Pentecost fits the bill here. If you go back and look and see what happens. In verse 2, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Don't think of being outside on a windy day. This isn't what it's talking about. I want you to think of like 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, when Elijah is hiding in the cave, and then it says this. Speaking of God, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. We know this story. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He was in the whisper. But this way that they describe wind here in 1 Kings is very similar to the way it's described here in Acts chapter 2. So we're not talking about just a... We're talking about a shattering sound, but the foundations are not moving. It's the sound of a typhoon, but nothing is happening. It's just this overwhelming sound that they're surrounded by. In Job 38, God speaks to Job. It says, out of the whirlwind. So what we have here is an overwhelming sound representing God's presence in their midst, but no one knows what's going on yet. Then the second thing that we see, this visible evidence, it says that there were tongues as of fire that rested, that appeared in verse 3, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Just like wind in the scriptures, fire often represents the presence of God. Third, it says the disciples began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This speaking of tongues is nothing like what happens every week in many Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Now, I'm not naive. We are in Gina, Louisiana. I know that we have people here, maybe with relatives in a Pentecostal church. So let me be very clear right now. I am not saying if you know someone that goes to a Pentecostal church, they're not a Christian. But I will be clear again. What we see practiced in many of those churches is not what we see practiced here in Acts chapter 2. The word tongues here is translated 
language in verse 11. That's what tongues means. And if you look here, starting off, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Put simply, they began to speak in other languages. Well, what languages were they speaking? Look at verse 8. These men are all Galileans. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? This word native language is the Greek word where we get the word dialect from. So it's not just that they knew other languages, it's that this is, you are perfectly speaking my language. If I try to speak Spanish, it will be very obvious I am not Hispanic. Even Craig, as great of a translator as he is, it's very obvious he's not Hispanic. If you want to hear fluid Spanish, you need to go to that country. But then here in Acts chapter 2, suddenly we have men who were speaking perfectly these native languages and dialects. How could this happen? So the word tongue here simply is an archaic word for language. Well, then why do we still use that word tongue? It's to distinguish it in the scriptures for the spiritual gift. When we hear tongue, what do you think? Speaking in tongues. That's what we think of. It's designed that way. What we see here is not an unknown angelic prayer language, but a known human language that was unknown to the speaker. That's the miracle. It would be as if I just stood before you now and began speaking fluent French, the praises of God. Something would be up. But what you would need to authenticate that sign is someone else who understands French. To be able to say, I cannot believe what I'm hearing right now. Everyone else would think he's just making something up. Gabriel, the other day, I was doing something at the house, and I was being silly with the kids, just making random sounds and noises, just being silly like a dad. And he made a joke about, Dad, stop speaking Spanish. I'm like, yeah, this, this isn't Spanish. In his mind, Spanish is anything he didn't understand. So I could fool him real quick, like, yeah, Gabriel, I spoke Spanish. That wouldn't be amazing. It would be amazing if someone else was there to say, no, that's perfect, fluent Spanish. What's, what's happening here? And that's the reaction we see from these men. Everyone in verse 12 is amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What's happening? What we see here are known human languages. The sign wasn't amazing because no one understood them. The sign was amazing because they did understand them. That's what made it astonishing. They were declaring in verse 11 the mighty works of God. Now I've heard the argument in favor of this Pentecostal understanding of tongues that many of the listeners at Pentecost thought the speakers were drunk. If you look here in verse 13, they are filled with new wine. And then Peter, in answering them, he says, no, these people are not drunk. So the argument kind of goes something like, they must have sounded drunk, so what they were speaking was not anything people were familiar with. But notice, we don't need to make these kind of assumptions or stretches to the text. Do you know why? Because the text tells us what it is right here. It, see it. We see it here in verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it goes through and gives a list there of everyone who had gathered together for this Jewish festival. Everyone's coming from all over, converts from all over the place. They've all gathered together 
in this one place, and they each hear in their own native language. This comment in verse 13 wasn't an explanation of what they were hearing. It was people mocking them. As they hear these other languages around, they say, ah, these people are just drunk. This is a joke. That's what they were saying. And Peter steps up and says, this is no joke. So the question for us this morning, one question, how can you tell if something is a genuine move of the Spirit? How can we tell? I've seen videos of something called holy laughter. And they say, well, look at the Spirit moving, and a preacher can just throw his hands out, and everyone just fall over and start laughing and passing out. And they say, look what God is doing. And a lot of people buy this. Well, how do we know? Who am I to say that is or is not the Spirit? How do we know if something is a genuine move of the Spirit? The Scriptures will confirm it. The Scriptures will confirm it. Look at what Peter does in verse 16. He says, these people aren't drunk. I will tell you what's happening in verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Look at that wordplay. The Spirit is uttering these other languages, and then Peter says, let me tell you, this is what was uttered through the same Spirit in the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. This all flesh is like the ends of the earth motif that we're seeing here. People from all nations will declare the mighty works of God when I pour out my Spirit. Then we have Pentecost, and what happens? The Spirit's poured out, and in all these tongues, these languages, God's praise is echoing. Peter is saying, look, it's the last days. What's happening? It's the last days. He used the Bible to verify the Spirit's witness. There was a biblical explanation to it. The Holy Spirit is not going to move or work in a way that is not spelled out for us in the Bible. It's not that he is not powerful enough to do so. Of course he is. He's God. He can do anything he wants to do. It's that God has chosen to work this way so that his works and message can be verified. Otherwise, we can point to anything and say, oh, that's the Spirit. Oh, this is the Spirit. Oh, well, that's the Spirit. There was a person just the other day here in Gina made a comment I thought was strange. This person's just sitting there, and this person's hand is closing. I said, oh, Jesus did that. Jesus closed my hand. Well, now we're in a weird situation. Who am I to say Jesus didn't do that? How do I know if that really happened? If something is a genuine move of the Spirit, it will be affirmed and verified through the Scriptures. That is how God has chosen to work, so that his message cannot be faked. It can't be counterfeited. And there are many counterfeits today. How do we know when a prophet is a counterfeit, when it's a false prophet or a false teacher? We cross-reference it with the Scriptures. Well, in the same way, how do we know when a work or a sign is truly of God or the Holy Spirit? We cross-reference it with the Scriptures. This is the way that we can discern what God is doing and when he is doing it, right here. 
the further we remove ourselves from this book, the more gullible we become. We have to know what the Scriptures say so that we can know when the Spirit is moving. Now, it's not just enough to be able to point to a word or phrase in the Bible and say, there, biblical, because I hear that sometimes. Well, tongues, boop, it's biblical. So what we're doing is okay. It's, it's, this is biblical. It's not good enough to just point to a word and say, there it is. If that's all it takes for something to be biblical, then we're going to have a really hard time refuting the serial killer pyromaniac running around burning buildings and pointing to Acts 2.19 as justification. Look, it's biblical. Signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. It's biblical. We would all look at that person and say, you're crazy. That's not what that verse is saying. Well, how do you know? Well, I can look at all the words around it and know. That's not what it says. Context matters. Both the immediate context and the wider context of the Scriptures. What do the surrounding verses and paragraphs say? What does the whole Scripture say? One of the reasons that we fall for unbiblical practices or teachings or ideas is because we have become less and less studious when it comes to the Bible. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or an expert pollster to know that biblical literacy is on a steep decline. I'm not talking about just general decline. It's steep. People know the Bible less and less. Now, there's all kinds of theories as to why. One of my personal theories is just we become lazy. We're a lazy people. I have everything, instant access to anything. Why do I need to study the Scriptures? I'll just Google if I ever have a question. We have to know the Scriptures. Regardless of what the reason is, we've become less studious. If we want to reap wisdom and spiritual discernment as Christians, we have to put in the hard work of study. Now, God does give discernment between spirits as a gift, but that doesn't mean that it's not something that can be cultivated. There are many churches that claim their works in the name of the Holy Spirit, but those works look nothing like what we see here in the Bible. If it's truly a work of the Spirit, it will be biblical. So what role does this miraculous witness of the Spirit serve? What's the whole point of this? Because Luke's purpose in writing this isn't to have a dialogue about the gift of tongues. Well, then why does he include this? When Peter references Joel chapter 2 here, he's telling the crowd how to interpret what the Spirit is doing. They're seeing a sign. He says, let me tell you what this is. This is one of the signs talked about. If you were here in our study of the book of John, you'll be very familiar with this word sign. Jesus had these different signs to point to himself as the Messiah. What's it a sign of? Look at verse 17. It's the last days. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. So then Peter goes on to show how Jesus has brought all this about. Here's what Peter is saying. The spirit here is showing you that Jesus really was the Messiah and the last days really are here. Well, how do we know? Because the Spirit's being poured out. Look at all these people speaking. The last days are here. Jesus is really the Messiah. The whole purpose of the Spirit's display was to authenticate the message of the gospel through Peter and all the disciples. 
The exercise of this gift was not for the personal benefit of the speaker. It was simply a sign that proved God is doing something new. In the book of Acts, whenever tongues pops up again, and it's only going to be a couple more times, it's when the gospel message is being authenticated as it reaches a new people. It isn't a personal devotion, and it isn't outside of a salvation experience. The two more times we're going to see it, it's to verify that the Spirit is visibly moving. That's the first witness. The second witness here is the witness of the Scriptures. I'm going to keep reading here after Peter quotes Joel. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on, this, on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So after the Spirit's witness, this visible evidence of the gospel, now we see the witness of the Scriptures. Here's the witness of the Scriptures. It is a tangible authority. The witness of the Scriptures provide authority. After the Spirit's witness, there's the visible evidence of the gospel. Peter gives a sermon. And because I don't want to make this joke later, I'm going to make it now. At the very end of our passage here. In verse 40, he's giving the sermon, he gives the invitation. In verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So if you want to know why I give long sermons, it's biblical. I feel good now. Look at how he treats the scriptures here. This is, without a doubt, a sermon. Scripture explanation. Scripture explanation. Scripture explanation. He's giving a sermon here to the people. 
Notice, notice how he uses them. In the short space here, Peter goes back. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Psalm 110, verse 1. And notice how he treats the scriptures when he quotes them. He quotes a passage, and then he explains that passage in light of Jesus. He actually deals with the text. He says, well, look, whenever David wrote about not seeing corruption and and not experiencing death, he couldn't be talking about himself because he died. We have his grave. We have his tomb. No, he was talking about Jesus. Peter is listing a passage and then explaining it in light of Jesus. So why use the Old Testament scriptures? Why doesn't Peter just talk about Jesus? Was it really necessary for him to go back and quote these passages? Couldn't he have just said, well, brothers, Jesus is the Messiah. Why use the Old Testament scriptures? Because Peter needs a higher authority than his own personal opinion, experiences, or feelings. Your experiences or your feelings or your opinions are not authoritative enough to do the work of God. They're not. I think probably we are most deceived by our experiences or feelings. We are so quick to trust what we see and hear and feel. When I was younger, we watched TV. We didn't have streaming still. We watched TV, and I would turn on, and about once a year, I don't know what channel it was on, but the world's greatest magic would come on television. And when it came on, I would just be glued to the TV. I'd be in the living room watching it, and you watch these magicians, and they get up on stage, and you see like this Ferrari, and these people walk around, and he comes over, and he puts this big drape over the car, and then he opens it up and waves to the audience and gets in the car and drops it. And by the time the curtain falls, the car just vanishes. Blanket drops to the floor. Car's gone. Everyone's amazed. Then the camera pans to the back of the stadium, and he's in the balcony, and he's waving to everyone. And everyone's like, oh, and there's an eruption of applause. I see these things. Imagine being there in person for that and seeing that. If you've seen this type of thing before, you know appearances can be deceiving. I used to do magic tricks for youth and stuff with cards. And I love that moment when you do a trick and they look at your hands like they've just seen the impossible. But I saw you put that card over there. And I want to say, you think you did. I tricked you. Our eyes can deceive us. As we get older, maybe you can testify to this more. Sometimes your eyes and ears can deceive you. Earlier, a couple days ago, Stacy, she said, was that Ezra? I've been crying a lot, having a hard time getting him to sleep. Was that Ezra? We look at the monitor, he's passed out. She is certain. She's like, I'm telling you, I heard him. But you didn't. We can be easily deceived by our experiences, our feelings, or our opinions. But the Bible has an authority that these things do not have. Peter needed a higher authority, and the Bible is that authority. He's not just giving his opinion. Hey, look, Jesus was a nice guy. Let me tell you what I saw. He's not just saying that, though he is. It's not just that. He's suggesting Jesus has fulfilled the Scriptures. And he tells the crowd that Jesus, quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Everything Jesus did was according to plan. What plan? This one, 
This is the authority. This is the plan. Do you think it was a possibility for the Scriptures to speak of these things ahead of time and then for them to not happen? We think about that for a moment. God spoke this ahead of time, and then he says in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In case that's not clear, these two phrases are very powerful, definite, specifically chosen, not subject to debate, plan, something mapped out and orchestrated, foreknowledge, knowing something ahead of time, God. God, in his foreknowledge, mapped out a plan that was definite and not subject to debate. So let me ask you, is it possible that these things would not have come true? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And here's where it gets really mind-blowing. This definite plan and foreknowledge of God was carried out by men. You crucified him. Jesus was delivered up according to God's plan, but you did it. You crucified him. Aside from being just a remarkable passage about the sovereignty of God, do you know what this passage reminds us? That there is absolutely no thing or person that can ever thwart God's word or his purposes. No one, nothing. Peter's point here isn't to have this huge theological dialogue about the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What he's doing is he's making the point that God's word is certain because it contains God's definite plans according to his foreknowledge. And if the scriptures aren't certain, they're not going to be a very good source of authority, are they? But because they are certain, Peter can hold them up and say, by what authority do you tell us this, Peter? By this authority. As a Christian witness, the power of your witness is not dependent upon your authority. It's dependent upon this authority. When someone rejects the gospel from you, they're not rejecting you. It's not your message. It's this message. But what we do is we remove ourselves from this again, and now we have to rely on my own authority. Now it kind of does sting when someone rejects me. Why? Because it hurts my perceived authority. But if we have the scriptures declaring for us the truth, we are not the ones being rejected. It's God. It's with this authority that Peter declares Jesus is the prophesied Messiah from the Scriptures. He says that Jesus was attested by God through wonders and signs, delivered up, crucified by the hands of lawless men, raised up by God, exalted at the right hand of God, and made both Lord and Christ. And he made all these points by pointing to God's Word. So that's the witness of the Scripture's authority. Here's the final witness this morning. The witness of the servant. The witness of the servant. What is the witness of the servant? If the Spirit is the evidence of the gospel and the Scripture is the authority, the foundation of the gospel, we still have one question. How does the gospel go from here to here? A servant who makes a plea. 
a servant. They take God's word to someone. And they say, will you believe this? And then it happens. It's miraculous if you think about it. The gospel is delivered through humble servants. In verse 37 here, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This crowd is cut to the heart by the sermon. So what happens next? They ask Peter, what are we supposed to do about this, Peter? We messed up. We crucified Jesus. Even the ones that weren't the ones that nailed the nails into his hands. Maybe they weren't the ones that lifted up the cross, but they crucified Jesus. Everyone in this room, we all had a role in crucifying Jesus. So what do we do, Peter? So Peter tells them, believe the gospel. Repent. Be baptized in Jesus' name. Peter explained the Spirit's evidence. Peter used the Scripture's authority. And then Peter calls them to believe the good news. Well, what makes Peter so special? Did it have to be Peter? You might think, well, he was an apostle. Well, that's true. But so what? So what that he was an apostle? That didn't give his message power. Where did the power come from? The Holy Spirit. It didn't give his message authority. Where did the authority of his message come from? The Scriptures. That's right. So what makes Peter so special? This is the secret of a powerful, faithful Christian witness right here. What makes Peter so special? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. This is the man that denied Jesus three times the night of his crucifixion. You're one of his disciples. Well, I don't know that guy. A little girl warming her hands. Oh, I think I know you. What makes Peter so special? Nothing. All he did was trust the Spirit and share the Scriptures. Everyone in here can do this. Everyone can. We can all do this. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you right now. If you're a believer, say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe. You are filled with God's Spirit. We all have 17 versions of these at home. We have apps on our phone, internet access to countless translations of the Scriptures. This is what makes a powerful Christian witness the Holy Spirit's power, the Bible's authority, and a willing Christian. When you have all three of these, you have a faithful Christian 
witness. A lot of our problems in witnessing comes by removing one of these three witnesses from the equation. First, we try to be a witness without visible evidence of the Spirit. We know our Bibles and we even try sharing it with people, but the fruit of the Spirit's not evident in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's a joke. It's not in our lives. It's not evident. Therefore, we can't get a hearing for our message. Look at our country right now. As polarized and divided as it is, there's Christians that jump full force into one side or the other. And the other side is just chomping at the bit, waiting to look at these Christians and say, ha, that's not like the Bible. You're not really like Jesus. You don't really know Jesus. You don't love him. I don't have to listen to a word you're saying. If the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in your life, you have no evidence to back up what you're saying. That's what the tongues did here. People won't believe you because your life proves your message wrong. Second thing, we try to be a witness without the authority of the Bible. Maybe we truly do bear the fruit of the Spirit. And we regularly ask for the Spirit to be supplied to us, but we really haven't adequately equipped ourselves with the Scriptures, so our message kind of lacks authority. We don't study the Scripture. We don't memorize the Scripture. We don't share the Scripture. We basically just use the Bible for personal devotions, maybe like a self-help reference. This is nothing more than just convenient psychology. Help me get through the day, Jesus. He wants to do so much more than that through his word. So much more. I'm not saying that every time you witness, you have to quote verbatim a verse for someone to be saved. But your language ought to be so infused with the scriptures that someone who knows you can read through the scriptures and constantly find themselves saying, you know what, so-and-so uses these kind of phrases and things a lot. They talk about this kind of stuff a lot. What a coincidence. It's always so awesome when I'm reading through the Psalms and I come across a Psalm and I think, oh, I heard a song on the radio the other day that used almost these exact phrases. How cool is that? It's how it ought to be with us. If we don't do this, then when we talk to others, what we're really doing is just relying on our own authority, opinions, or experiences, and that's not good enough. Here's the third way that we, that we remove one of these witnesses, and this is the most tragic in my estimation. Sometimes we trust the Spirit, we display the fruit of the Spirit, we, we study, memorize, and are ready to share the Scriptures, but then we do nothing. We remove the third witness, me. We just do nothing. The Christian is meant to be the link between the Spirit and the Scriptures on one hand and those who are lost on the other. We don't have to manufacture some kind of evidence. We don't have to conjure up any authority. We just have to share it. Look at the result of Peter's witness in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Hear that final word, souls. Unfortunately, I've seen all too often where Christians or churches are more excited about the number 3,000 than they are that word, souls. These are souls we're talking about. 
souls that will spend an eternity in agony and torment in hell if they are not forgiven of their sin. Souls that we eat Thanksgiving dinner with every year. Souls that raised us when we were babies and burped us and changed our diapers. Souls that we were a part of bringing into the world. These are souls. We are after souls. Does it bother you that people that you know deeply and well are going to suffer forever? Does it bother you enough to say something to them about it? Even if they're tired of it? I'm not saying that every time we see our non-believing family, the only thing we need to say is, Jesus, 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 Jesus. But some of us have swung the pendulum so far the other way, we never say anything at all. Just to keep the peace. It bothered Peter, you know how I know, verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. You can always just imagine, brothers, please listen to me. You will not be saved if you don't repent and trust Jesus. We will not be witnessing servants until we are bothered by the fact that there are countless souls all around us who are destined for hell this very moment. If we would simply display the fruit of the Spirit and share God's word with an individual, a soul might be saved from eternal punishment. Maybe not, but maybe so. Isn't that worth it? Once we catch this, we will be like Peter, using as many words as necessary, full-length, hour-long sermons if necessary, to exhort others to turn to Christ to be saved. Maybe this morning, in this room, there is a soul that is destined for hell. I'm certain of it. Probably way more than one. And you're hearing the scriptures this morning. And maybe your heart is being cut. The scripture's authority and the witness of the spirit. You've seen Christians around you. You know the truth of the gospel. But you have just been running from it. Waiting for someone to just tell you. You can believe the gospel and be saved today. Let me be that servant for you this morning. You can believe the gospel and be saved from your sin today. I've heard people say something like, well, I'm just destined for hell. Especially when you start talking about foreknowledge and sovereignty and everything. I'm just destined for hell. Let me tell you this. I'm going to use the words that Peter used, actually. If you think that you're destined for hell, hear this. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Save yourself from this crooked generation. If that's you this morning, you don't have to be a 
perfect, trained, talented zipliner. There's no such thing. You just need to trust Jesus. Trust the Scriptures. Repent of your sin. Believe in Him and be baptized. And by becoming a follower of Jesus, you will be saved. This invitation is open to anybody whom the Lord moves and calls. Church, for the rest of us, may we become a powerful, authoritative witness to the truth of the gospel. May we rely on the Holy Spirit, fill ourselves with God's word, and step out in faith and obedience to proclaim the gospel to the souls in our community. Amen. Let's pray.